Okay, Acts 2, 14 through 21. Get into Peter's sermon this week a little bit. Not, not all of it, of course, but about a third of it. Uh, so Acts 2, 14 through 22. Let's pray. Uh, Father, you have proclaimed to us eternal life by your apostles who walked and talked with light and life incarnate. Your Spirit empowered them to preach and to write so that we would have fellowship with them and with you, with each other, and so that our joy may be filled to the brim and even to overflowing. May we indeed overflow so that even more may be brought into heaven's fellowship that our joy may be made complete. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand for the reading of the word. Acts 2, 14 through 21. This is God's holy word. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, Let this be known to you, and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen. This is God's word. So in the January Presbytery meeting, the last one, uh, a new intern came in to the Presbytery. That's a, a category that they bring in interns to serve at churches and when they bring in a new intern and he's approved and examined and all that, then someone is given the task of giving him a charge, sort of a, a, a word of encouragement and exhortation as he goes on into this phase of his life and ministry. And the, the minister, the pastor who um, was responsible for the charge stood up and said, I want to give you an exhortation from our beloved Trinity hymnal. And it's from this song, and it says... Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. He said, I know you're learning all these wonderful things. You know, he's a seminary student. He's going through a time of internship, reading books. And I know you're learning these wonderful things, but that's something you never outgrow. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Uh, It's usually a kid's song, but just pause for a moment and recognize the profound epistemological implications of that statement. How do we know anything at all? For certain, like how do we know anything for certain? 
because the Bible tells me so. Right? Here as the potter is, is forming and shaping Peter, you can see that he's increasingly captivated by Scripture, by the Bible. You, you remember from when he, he was um, calling the people to elect a new apostle, he, he recalled Scripture. He continues in his sermon to, to recall Scripture. He is focused on Scripture because he believes the Bible tells me so. That is where we get our knowledge from. As he begins to preach in Jerusalem, he doesn't first turn to experience or to philosophy or to any other source of knowledge, but he turns to the Bible tells me so. He turns to the Bible. He sets out to prove that Jesus is the Christ and to call people to repentance based on the scriptures. Um, three scriptures, really. Joel Chapter 2, verses 28 through 31, that's the one he quotes in our text today. Psalm 68, 8 through 11, and Psalm 110, which we've been doing in Sunday school in verse 1. Um, And by these scriptures, he shows that Jesus is the risen, ascended, messianic king. He is the one who sits on David's throne. And uh, an obvious implication of that is... Therefore, we all need to bend the knee. We need to repent to said king. So as Peter begins the message, he begins with promise and fulfillment from Joel. Um, Really here, he he begins by explaining why these people are not drunk. (laughs) The, The Jews were always looking forward to this age of fulfillment. When David would sit on his throne, the son of David, and the kingdom would be established. And they knew that the age would be attended by the special uh, activity and arrival of the Holy Spirit. And Joel, this passage from Joel, is one of the most obvious Old Testament texts about this coming of the end-time eschatological Holy Spirit. They knew that's when the new age would begin, and this is what they were looking for as Jews. So for Peter to apply this text at this time, what he is saying is the time is now. We have arrived in this season that has been so long prophesied. Some have put it like this, that Peter's saying this, what you're seeing, is that. This is that. So I want to spend the first part of this sermon kind of looking at just what happened that day. And then the latter part, I want to look at what are the implications of what happened. So first of all, what happened that day? Um, So we read last time about the rushing wind blowing into the room where the disciples were, and that it was loud enough so that people from across the city heard it and said, i got to go check that out. It it was really a loud noise. So it drew a crowd. And when they arrived, there were disciples speaking all different languages. And it must have seemed chaotic to them. But then over there, there's there's a language I recognize. So they, they start hearing and gathering and hearing the word of God proclaimed to them in their own tongue by these Galileans. They were amazed. And the text says that some of them were somewhat skeptical, perhaps, or mocking. They said, these guys are drunk. So Peter's address here is the real explanation. This is what's actually happening at Pentecost. 
And to me, it's almost in passing that he sort of dis- discards their mockery about drunkenness. It's not even the third hour of the day. Nobody's saying, well, it's nine o'clock here, but it's five o'clock somewhere. <laughs> uh, it was a feast day, you know, but actually, uh, apparently, feast days, it was common to fast in the morning before feasting. So it was just really an absurdity that they would be drunk. But he stands up among these other 11 apostles and addresses the men of Judea and Jerusalem. And perhaps he spoke in Aramaic. Maybe he was the the one who continued to speak Aramaic. Or or perhaps he spoke in Greek so that more people could hear. But he calls to the men specifically of Jerusalem and Judea, which is the very heart of the Jewish faith. And these are the, the countrymen, the people who crucified Jesus. And according to Jesus, these are the people to whom they are to witness to first, from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. So he's beginning with the men of Jerusalem. He calls them to give ear to his words, and he says, basically, do you remember the prophecy of Joel, uh, the one that we heard as kids in synagogue as the scroll was unrolled? Do you remember that? This is that. It's happening. So there's three things really that I want to draw your attention to, three things um, from Joel 2 that describe what's going on at Pentecost. Um, So this here is nearly a direct quote in Acts from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, um, with a few subtle variations. And one variation that I think is less subtle and, and intentional on Peter's part as he interprets the first phrase for effect. He interprets the phrase uh, what, which in Joel 2.28 begins, and it shall come to pass afterward, he interprets that phrase, and in the last days it shall be. So that's the first thing I want us to see from Joel 2 is that They and we are in the last days. The last days have arrived. Again, this is that. The last days or the latter days is a a phrase used numerous times in Scripture to mark out the the coming of the end. For example, Isaiah 2.2 It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills, and the nations shall flow to it. And another one from Hosea, chapter 3, verse 5. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God, and David their king, and they shall come in the fear of the Lord, and to his goodness in the latter days. So you see these texts in the Old Testament speaking of the latter days. Peter believes that he and we are in these latter, latter days. Not like Harold Camping thinks we are in these latter days. <laughs> you know, the last days could end tomorrow. They could end 2,000 years from now. That's not the point. The point is that the latter days is a season of history, a season of redemptive history. And this is the beginning in Pentecost of the latter days. And it's the, the, the last days in the New Testament is actually portrayed in what's what we often call the already or not yet, or simultaneously present but also future. Um, so, for example, Hebrews two, uh, 1 verse 2, 
But in these last days, so that's present for them, in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. Then in 2 Timothy 3, verse 1, Paul says, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, of future. So simultaneously here, but also there remains fulfillment. There's difficulty with interpreting Old Testament prophecy and this whole idea of the already not yet or fulfillment of initiation, but also future consummation. When we read the Old Testament, that's really quite a veiled concept. Uh, You may be able to pick out here or there, but by and large, when you read about the latter days, you don't know whether it's talking about the first coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ, because that whole uh, scheme is, is relatively veiled in the Old Testament. Calvin, when he's talking about the day of the Lord, from verse 20, he says, um, Some do interpret it as the first coming of Christ in the flesh, and others interpret it as the last day of the resurrection. I allow neither opinion. For in my judgment, the prophet speaks of the whole kingdom of Christ. You catch that? It's not the first coming or the latter coming, but it's the whole kingdom of Christ. That's what the latter days are. And he says, therefore, he appoints no certain day, but he begins the day at the first preaching of the gospel and extends it to the last resurrection. So they and we have entered into the last days. Which helps us as we interpret scripture, because we should not be reading every bit of end time prophecy as though it was entirely future. Instead, it's almost like sanctification or salvation. I was saved, I'm being saved, I will be saved. Same with, with prophecy. It was fulfilled, it's being fulfilled, and it will be fulfilled. Amen. So related to this, then, is the, the day of the Lord that he brings up. Um, if what I just said is true, then we are in the day of the Lord. And in Scripture, the day of the Lord is kind of scary. It's the day of judgment. So this is the arrival of the day of the Lord at Pentecost. Once again, there's this already not yet element to the day of the Lord. And Peter really seems to see it, at least in part, as being fulfilled at Pentecost. It's tempting to say the, f- the first part, the, the part about prophecy is being fulfilled here, but the latter part, the part about judgment in the day of the Lord, isn't really. But Peter doesn't really indicate that. As he says, this is that. This day of Pentecost is what's happening in Joel 2. So that includes the part about the day of the Lord. And what he says is, from Joel 2 in verses 19 through 20, And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. Uh, So that's present fulfillment for him. And yet, in his second epistle, Peter talks about the day of the Lord as though it were yet future. In 2 Peter 3.10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So 
I, I do think that the day of the Lord is primarily to be thought of as a terrifying reckoning for all those who are not in Christ uh, at his second coming. I think that's primarily what the day of the Lord is about. But there's also a sense in which it is happening now. Uh, we may not see these metaphors that he uses here literally coming to pass before our eyes, darkened sun, bloody moon. Um, but we should understand that there are great spiritual battles being fought behind the scenes even now. And are these images or metaphors of spiritual events or, or will we one day see these things take place literally? I have no idea. Truth be told, uh, I don't really know what these images are supposed to represent exactly. Not that there aren't answers for that out there, but I hadn't uncovered them yet. But I do understand this, that they are images of judgment and of the day of the Lord, and they're scary. And Peter seems to see them as having begun at Pentecost. So then, we are in the day of the Lord. The coming of the kingdom marks, uh, or the coming of the Spirit marks the beginning of the kingdom of Christ, which, if, if the great king has arisen and taken his seat on his throne, that marks the death blow for every last enemy of Christ. That means judgment. The coming of the Spirit means judgment for enemies of Christ. And people who are enjoying now prosperity, and decadence, like many Western cultures, are really gleefully walking deeper and deeper into judgment. So we can't say judgment is not happening now. But understand that at Pentecost, the great and terrible day of the Lord did begin. The third thing we should understand from Joel 2 is that the Spirit came that day. The Spirit came. Now, the Spirit's activity in the Old Testament is tricky. At least when we compare it to the New Covenant. Like, did, what, how did his, his activity change from the Old Testament to the New Testament? In the New Covenant, he began to do things that he didn't do in the Old, but he never stopped doing what he's always done. We know, for example, that he regenerated souls so that they would have faith and repent and believe in the Messiah, he had to. Or they would not be saved, just like he does now. But in terms of special grace to empower or anoint for certain tasks, his role is a little bit different. Before Pentecost, primarily prophets, priests, and kings were anointed for a special task by the Holy Spirit. Or at times, others like uh, Bezalel and Aholiab, who, who built the, the items for the tabernacle, were anointed by the Holy Spirit to, to be craftsmen. They were given a special measure of the Holy Spirit. Um, so think of Elijah and Elisha. It seems that they were not equally filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. And Elisha asked, when, when you go, can I have a double portion of the Spirit that's on you? And then when he was whisked away in the chariot, <laughs> Elisha takes his cloak and slams it in the water. He's upset at God. You take, you take this, my mentor from me. But then he does receive 
a double portion of the Spirit. Or, or Moses, um, when Moses, was, they were in the wilderness and, and people were weary of manna and they were bemoaning their lack of meat. And the Lord gets mad at them and Moses gets upset and he says, did I give birth to these people? Do I have to carry them like a nursing mother to the promised land? But God mercifully commanded Moses to to call 70 elders and what he was going to do was place some of the spirit that was on Moses onto these other men. So they go up to the tabernacle, he places the spirit on them and they begin to prophesy. But then a little bit later, they're all done prophesying except two guys are in the camp and, and a young man runs up and tells Moses and Joshua is zealous, he says, tell them to stop. But Moses said, to, to Joshua, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. That's what's happening at Pentecost. Would that all the people had the spirit. Notice in this passage from Joel 2 that he quotes in Acts, notice the emphasis on the universality of the coming of the Spirit. Beginning in verse 17, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. We're like raccoons. We like the shiny bit. The shiny bit for us is always these manifestations of the Spirit. But the point is really here the universality of the Spirit's coming and the universality of the Spirit's present. In the New Covenant, every last person has the Holy Spirit. These manifestations, be they tongues, visions, and dreams, prophecy... They're all about, really about, revelation and subsequent proclamation. Revelation of truth and the subsequent proclamation. Calvin again here, he comments, Therefore, this word prophesy signifies nothing else than the rare and excellent gift of understanding. As if Joel should say, Under the kingdom of Christ there shall not be a few prophets only to whom God may reveal his secrets, but all men shall be endued with the spiritual wisdom, even to the prophetical excellency. And in these words, Peter invites the Jews to be partakers of the same grace. And as for us, let us know that the same has spoken to us. For although those visible graces of the Spirit have ceased... Yet God has not withdrawn his spirit from his church. Wherefore he offers him daily unto us all by this same promise without putting any difference. So the purpose of all of this then is is that Christ is spreading his kingdom by his spirit. In, In two ways, by the empowerment of his people and by the salvation of the lost. The empowerment of his people and the salvation of the lost. So these three things we see from Joel chapter 2 in this text. First, that we are in the last days. Second, that we are in the day of the Lord. And third, that the Spirit has come universally to all people. Now what, what does all of this mean for us? 
Well, I think the first thing that it means is there's a universal revelation and proclamation in the household of God. In other words, there's a priesthood of all believers. We should always keep a few things in the back of our mind about Acts. First, uh, this is a book about the ongoing acts of the risen, ascended king on David's throne. So this is about what Jesus is doing now in these last days. And second, that it's a spiritual kingdom. It advances through the proclamation of the gospel. So this book is the story of the Great Commission. And if our application is centered around the miraculous manifestations of the Spirit, and and the conclusion we draw is, you too can have these powers, if you will be open to the move of the Spirit, then I think we're sidestepping the point of Acts entirely. That's not the point. Why Luke wrote this story down. Verse 19 said that there's wonders in the heavens and above and signs on the earth below. The point of signs and wonders is that, first of all, they're rare enough to make us wonder, to make us marvel. And signs, signs are meant to signify, to point us to a greater reality. I think sometimes Reformed folk are accused of of quenching the spirit of dry religion, uh, of squelching the supernatural, um, perhaps true at times. But I think the best of the Reformed are simply pointing out that, that the glory of the supernatural is in the everyday. In other words... We we want to supernaturalize everything. We're not looking for the rare miracle. Everything is supernatural. The idea that, that the spirit-filled place is the place of the miraculous and emotional is just too small a vision. The point of signs and wonders conveyed here at Pentecost is, is not the signs and wonders. It's the supernatural revelation and subsequent proclamation of the gospel of Christ. That the Great Commission is being fulfilled. Jesus, all authority in heaven and on earth given to him, is with his people through his spirit, giving them power to proclaim mighty deeds. Sometimes I think we ache for something manifestly supernatural for some sort of radical transformative experience for sensation for signs and wonders and all the while the bible says we've been equally baptized into the same spirit we have the spirit already all who have been regenerated by the spirit have access to the same christ applying wisdom giving Boldness empowering Spirit of God. And we've all been given different gifts and we all struggle with our own unique sins, so the manifestation of the Spirit in our lives is, is different from person to person and, and from season to season in our own lives. But we all have the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is poured out on all who believe. Uh, I was in. Seminary, 2013, second year of seminary. That was a long time ago. I feel old saying that. 
<laughs> but my friend Ted, he brought me to Desiring God's annual pastors conference in Minneapolis. Um, and one of the addresses given by a British minister was entitled Sovereign Grace, Spiritual Gifts, and the Pastor. How should a Reformed pastor be charismatic? Controversial topic for Desiring God Pastors Conference. Coincidentally, I went the next year, and after the controversy, they they chose to speak on union with Christ, and they got Sinclair Ferguson and Michael Horton. So they kind of balanced it out for us. <laughs> Sovereign grace, spiritual gifts, and the pastor. How should a Reformed pastor be charismatic? The whole conference was impactful for me, and so when I got home, I thought, well, my experience doesn't reflect what that guy was talking about, and I shouldn't be closed-minded, so I should undertake to try it out. So I I remember on my daily drive to class, I I pray fervently for my friends, for myself, for my family, uh, out loud, I, I was about. To, I, I wasn't going to start babbling and trying to learn the skill of speaking in tongues or anything like that. Uh, but, but I thought, if I'm seeking the Lord fervently and all this is true, it'll just happen, or, or something will happen to me—an ecstatic utterance, a soul enrapturing wind of the Spirit through my car, uh, something. Now, I understand this form of experimentation is not the best way to seek out truth, but it is what I did. Um, And there were good things about this experimental season. For one, I was praying more. I I was really focused on God. I I was emotionally, mentally, spiritually invested in God and in the salvation of the lost. But I, I also felt like I was seeking something And rather than seeking God directly, I was seeking an experience through God. I I was working myself up. I was working up my own emotions to try to have something happen. And instead of having them stirred by truth. And to be honest, it was kind of a lot of work. Uh, It was exhausting. And it was frustrating when the things I was hoping to see didn't come to fruition. So naturally, what do you do? You have to blame yourself. I must be doing something wrong because I'm not having this experience. Instead, this is just my own testimony. The place where I have found the greatest spiritual rest is in the supernatural power of, of the everyday Christian life, the everyday mundane Christian life, the gospel of Jesus Christ, dying to self, the assembly of the saints, the the preaching of the word, the sacraments. It's the simple things done by simple people over simple lives lived through the long haul that that are most spirit empowered. Just to be clear, by the way, there's thousands of people who would count themselves Charismatic, who would amen every word I just said. This is not to bash charismatic folks. But my encouragement here is, is fairly simple. The Spirit is poured out on the whole church for this reason. And the reason is the revelation of the gospel to sinners who will then go and reveal the gospel to sinners. So find joy in that, that you have been made a member of these people who have 
received the Holy Spirit, that we have the Holy Spirit. We don't have to keep looking for something more. We have the Holy Spirit. And then take heart as we spread the gospel that the Spirit is is still with you. And don't forget to stand in awe and wonder at the everyday power of the Spirit in your life. It's not always been this way. We have a special thing in the New Covenant, the relationship with the Spirit. It's a unique and wonderful feature of the New Covenant. And it is truly more inspiring than the most dramatic sign or wonder, if we have eyes to see it. We have to remember that. Now, the other thing that Pentecost means for us is that we face judgment and salvation. This is a serious thing, that the day of the Lord is upon us. We want to focus on the light and the positive, but Peter's whole sermon is really, this is a call to repentance in Acts chapter 2. A call to repentance in light of the coming judgment. So again, in verses 19 through 20, just take these things seriously. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes. The great and magnificent day. Joel says a little before this in in his book in chapter 1 verse 15, just a comment about the seriousness of what the day of the Lord means. He says, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. That's judgment. That's the day of the Lord. It is serious business, and we should pay attention to that. It's not a good day for sinners. The good news, the good news of the gospel, comes in the context of the bad. The gospel means nothing if there's no justice and no judgment. There will come a day, and according to Peter, in some sense, this day is upon us, when all who have transgressed against the holy God will face righteous retribution. And that's a scary thing. It will not be pretty. Amos says in chapter 5 of his prophecy, he says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. But there is salvation. Salvation from the righteous wrath of God may be found. Verse 21 of Acts 2, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Here we have some really wonderful Lucan Christology. I mean, in Joel, the, the divine name is used, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh. Now, in all this talk about kingship and the son of David and the coming of the kingdom, Lord here in verse 21 has to refer to Jesus. If you call on the name of the Lord, the Lord Jesus, you will be saved. And this is a great text to talk about with our Mormon friends and Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, I had a Mormon friend me on Facebook. He seemed local, so I said, okay. <laughs> and then he sent me a video, like a personalized video. And he, I, I'm elder so-and-so, young man, well-dressed. He's a Mormon. He's, in COVID times, they're doing evangelism this way. So I hope if I can find time, I can engage him a little bit. Maybe I'll use this text. But the name of the Lord is the name of the Lord Jesus. Uh, later on in in uh, Peter's sermon, 
In Acts 2, 33 through 36, and Michael went over this in Sunday school, I think last week, but it says, For David did not ascend to the heavens, but himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. In the familiar Acts 4, 11 through 12, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So the means of salvation from the day of the Lord, the day of judgment which is upon us, is to call out upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We kind of have to to pick this apart, but you know these Jews knew what Peter was saying about Jesus. Which was basically, the power of the Holy Spirit descending on us in this way is proof that the day of the Lord is upon us. And you may be saved from the wrath that is to come by calling upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who we proclaim to you this day by the power of the Holy Spirit, or you will face the wrath to come. That's what he's telling these Jews. I think it's good in texts like these that that we be reminded to make our own calling and election sure. That the day of judgment is coming. It is upon us. And, and how will we respond? There's really only two two responses. Repent and call in the name of the Lord or do what is right in our own eyes. There's not a lot of middle ground. So will we cry out to the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation? Will we be saved from the wrath to come? Will we lay hold of the free offer of the gospel? And it is a free and universal call. He says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Every last one. I just warn you, if you have a Calvinism that, that, that can't deal with that, you have the wrong Calvinism. Okay, It is a universal and free offer of the gospel, and it is our job to proclaim it. Every last one shall be saved who calls on the name of the Lord. That means you, me, old, young, black, white, brown, male, female, rich, poor. The offer of the gospel is free. And anyone who will call on the name of the Lord will be saved from the wrath to come. So first, by the power of the Holy Spirit in you, if He is in you, apply that message to yourself daily. And then take that free offer of the gospel and and offer it freely to those around you. There's no one on this earth who's not qualified to hear the message that if they will call upon the name of the Lord Jesus, they too can find salvation. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen.